It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Mark 3, we're going to be looking at Mark 3, verses 7 to 19. Mark 3, verses 7 to 19. If you're a guest with us this morning, um, our, our kind of general practice here uh, in, when, in, when it comes to the sermon and preaching is, is to find a book of the Bible and to systemically, slowly work our way through it verse by verse, paragraph after paragraph, um, so that uh, we can know what God's Word says and, and seek to apply it to our lives. Um, and this is a, a wonderful practice for a number of reasons. One, it just helps us know the Bible better. Uh, another is it protects you all from my pet topics. You know, I might, uh, if we shoot around the Bible uh, different places, choosing different topics, you'll hear probably a lot of things that I'm generally passionate about, but uh, when we do this, it, it it allows for God's Word to set the tone for, for what uh, we talk about, the themes, subjects, applications that we talk about on a regular basis. And so it's very helpful just to find a book of the Bible, slowly work our way through it. And that's what we're doing with Mark's Gospel. We uh, started in Mark's Gospel um, earlier this year in the spring, uh, and we plan on being in it until uh, actually uh, fall of uh, next year. Um, or winter, maybe winter of next year, fall or winter of next year. And so we're slowly making our way through it, and we are just getting into chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And if you're there, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. And as we hear God's word, let's listen with reverence and joy. Let's listen to these words and hear these words as if Jesus were standing here this morning speaking them to us himself. These words come to us with the very same authority. So let's listen with reverence and awe and joy to the words of our God and King. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea in Jerusalem, in Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, "'You are the Son of God!' And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we give you thanks for this passage that we just read and what it reveals to us about who you are who we are, who Jesus is and what you've done for us in him and how we might live 
as those who follow him. We pray that you would breathe upon this sermon by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit so that the words of this passage penetrates our hearts and changes our lives, conforms us more and more to the image of your beautiful, wonderful, excellent Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, as we've been making our way through Mark's gospel, last week we came to a sort of climax in what we've been calling the conflict passages, wherein Jesus encounters conflict and controversy with the scribes and the Pharisees. And in our passage this morning, we enter a kind of new phase in the ministry of Jesus and in Mark's gospel, which begins by telling us that Jesus withdrew which is an interesting detail in it, we find uh, Jesus withdrawing from the public eye in such a way that he's withdrawing from these, these conflicts and these controversies with the Pharisees. And, and it's not just that Jesus withdraws from these conflicts to keep his own sanity or to avoid any more issues with the Pharisees. This, this is an act of judgment, really wherein he's leaving them to their own sins and devices and desires. He's letting them be what they want to be and do what they want to do. However, while we get some relief from the conflict passages as we enter in this new phase of Mark, we find that things are, are pretty much equally chaotic as we turn to focus on another uh, cast of characters, this, this cast of characters that we can call the crowd, the crowd, and, and, and they show up from time to time in Mark's gospel. We've seen them already, and we'll see them again. And the crowd is, is this kind of fickle group. Sometimes the, the crowd wants Jesus, and then later in Mark's, in Mark's gospel, we see the crowd wants to crucify Jesus. And while in our passage this morning, we, we see this is one of the scenes wherein the crowd seems to want Jesus. You can see something sinister in their desires nonetheless, since they don't seem to be seeking Jesus simply because of who he is, but because of what they can get from him. And this is in direct contrast with, with what we see in the following paragraph in verses 13 to 19, where Jesus calls his disciples not to just come and get stuff from him, but to be with him and to join him in his ministry. And so we're going to look at these two paragraphs here. The first one showing us the consumeristic crowd in 7 through 12, and the second showing us a called community in verses 13 to 19. So first, the consumeristic crowd. Verse 7 begins by telling us that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And now, uh, that may not mean much to you unless you consult one of those maps in the back of your Bible that you never look at. But if you were to go there, you would see that, that this is a vast area discussing. This is a vast uh, amount of square mileage, especially in those days when traveling would have been much more difficult than it is now. Uh, of course, we find here that people in the crowd have gathered from uh, Galilee, from around Galilee, which is the region Jesus is in. So that makes sense. But also notice that people come from Judea and from Jerusalem in Judea, the city of Jerusalem in Judea, which is a four-day walk. People are coming from Idumea, which is about 120 miles due south. 
We, we find people from Tyre and Sidon, which is about 50 miles north. So Jesus here has gained not just local and regional recognition, but he has gained national recognition in Israel as people from all over Israel flock to where Jesus is. And what's more is that Tyre and Sidon are, are particularly interesting. They're largely, if not entirely, Gentile regions. So, so Jesus' reputation has gained him a far-reaching recognition here. And of course, we know why, as Mark tells us here. He says, when the, when the great crowd heard all he was doing, they came to him. So the reason people are flocking to Jesus from all over the country is because they heard about his ministry, his, his healing, his restoration of the paralyzed, his cleansing of the leprous, and, and the healing of any otherwise infirmed people, his deliverance of the demonized. People were hearing about all of these things, and so they were flocking to Jesus so that they or their loved ones could get what Jesus was giving, which on the one hand is, is perfectly innocent and fine. Right? It is perfectly legitimate to, to seek healing or deliverance for yourself or your loved ones whenever the opportunity avails itself. That makes good sense. And yet, as I mentioned earlier, there's something a bit more sinister in this whole story than just that. Look at verse 9 here. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Now, this is the equivalent of, of Jesus telling his disciples, keep the car running in the back. We, we, we might need to make a quick escape here. You know, it's kind of like a heist movie where they just keep the car running in the back so that they can all jet out real quick and, and not have any issues with, with moving on quickly and getting out of the, the chaos. Keep the car running so we can make a quick escape. Well, why is Jesus wanting to make a quick escape? Because he's in danger of being crushed by this crowd. They got the boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So you can see here, this, this, is, this is chaotic. There are people crowding around Jesus, falling down around him, trying to touch him to the point where he's in danger of being crushed by this crowd. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this before, uh, where there's like a real possibility of you being crushed by a crowd of people. I, I've experienced this on, on several occasions. Uh, one was recently. It was a few years ago, actually. We went on our family vacation to uh, rural New York, in, in, in the state of New York, and uh, we stayed at a friend's lake house, and it was lovely. But we decided to go into New York City for the day uh, to see the sights and to let the kids experience an international city. I mean, it was just a, a wonderful time. Um, and we had a great day. Uh, but we didn't, we didn't plan our escape very well. Uh, so on the way in, we drove and we parked our car uh, just outside the city in New Jersey somewhere. And, and we took a train into Manhattan but then in our plans to leave the city, we decided to take a train uh, back to our car, and we did it right around rush hour in New York City, which is a big mistake. If you ever go to the city, don't ever do that. It's stupid. So we go to the train station, and several trains are broken down, tracks are closed, out of commission, and it is chaotic. It is insane as people are trying to get on these trains, trying to get out of the city, trying to get home uh, from work. And, and I don't even remember how it happened, but at some point in the whole debacle, we ended up taking an elevator to a floor underground, trying to get on a train. 
And we found ourselves in this particularly confined room with low ceilings in the midst of a suffocating crowd with people frantically trying to get on a train. And I mean, it, it, we were in this, this suffocating crowd with three, at the time, three children. Uh, I was holding one of the boys, Amy was holding the other. We had the stroller in our bag, and then poor Lavinia couldn't see a thing. She's just kind of being moved by this crowd. We're shoulder to shoulder. You can feel the oxygen thinning in the room kind of thing. It was, it was horrendous. And it would have been so easy, I, I realized in the moment, it would have been so easy to just fall and get crushed by this stampede of people who were frantically trying to get on, on the train. It's a frightening event. And one of the things that stands out to you in a moment like that is that these people don't care about you. These people don't care. But they will crush you or your children in order to get what they want, in order to get on this train. Well, similarly, this crowd is treating Jesus like that. Yes, in one sense, there's, the crowd was seeking Jesus. They were coming from all around the country to seek him, to get to him. But notice here, they didn't care about him. They just wanted to get what he was giving. Their lack of actually caring about him is signified by the way that they were willing to even potentially crush him in order to get what they wanted out of him. Like a pinata, they were willing to crush Jesus in order to get whatever goodies they wanted out of him. They sought him, but not as though he was an end in and of himself, but as though he was a means to another end, that he was a means to, to their bodies being healed or their loved ones being freed from demonic oppression. Again, perfectly good and healthy desires, perfectly healthy things to seek Jesus for, but here he's only a means to those ends. He's a commodity. The crowd didn't want Jesus. They wanted what he could do. And thus, they were even willing to potentially crush him to get what they wanted. I wonder if you, if you ever think about how people like us still do this today. I came across a story some time ago from, from Russell Moore. Uh, Moore is a, a public theologian who's involved uh, with much ministry at the intersection of faith and politics. And he tells of a time when, a, when an old college friend uh, called him one day and phoned him up and, and inquired if Moore knew of any good churches in the area in which he lived that he might join. And Moore exclaimed with delight to hear that his friend had, had become a Christian, because when he knew him before, he wasn't a Christian. And uh, his friend quickly responded by assuring Dr. Moore that he hadn't at all become a Christian. Instead, he was running for a political office, and he thought that being, of a, mem- uh, being a member of a church would increase his, uh, particular, uh, increase his credibility with a, his particular voting block. Jesus and church was a commodity. Uh, peddlers of, uh, and believers of the, the prosperity gospel do this. Jesus isn't worth seeking simply because of who he is and his beauty and excellence and glory and grace. Jesus is worth seeking because he gives us stuff. He gets us nicer cars and better houses and healthy bodies and a positive outlook on life. But then, of course, it is not just it's not just the crowd or politicians or, or prosperity gospel proponents this, this, is a, this is a problem colonizing much of Western Christianity today. In 2005, sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist-Denton released a book called Soul Searching, wherein they discussed what they found when researching the religiosity and spirituality of young professing Christians across the United States. 
And what they found is that far from possessing the, a biblical or historical Christian faith, the, the term that better described the religion and spirituality of their subjects was the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It's a religious ideology that is all about being good. It's moralistic. It's also all about feeling good. It's therapeutic. And it's deistic. That means it keeps God at an arm's length. He's distant. He's not involved. He's just there to help us be good and to help us feel good. Akinda Creasy Dean, she sums it up well uh, when she describes it in her book, Almost Christian. She writes, moralistic therapeutic deism has little to do with God or a sense of divine mission in the world. It offers comfort, bolsters self-esteem, helps solve problems, and lubricates interpersonal relationships by encouraging people to do good, feel good, and keep God at arm's length. In other words, It's a religion that uses Jesus as a commodity, as a means to another end, treating Jesus as a means to an end of a pursuit of a life of of psychological well-being and happiness in some vague sense of moral direction. To the point where Jesus and Christianity and church are crushed into something almost unrecognizable compared to the biblical and historical Christian faith. And of course, part of the danger with something like this being you know, colonizing Western Christianity, uh, you know, moralist, moralistic therapeutic deism and, and other types of consumer Christianity, colonizing Western Christianity in the West is that it can be very hard to recognize it in oneself. I once heard uh, Tim Keller say that culture is kind of like uh, water uh, when it rains. You know, you can put on a raincoat and rain boots and an umbrella, get an umbrella, but you're still going to get wet. And because of this, It can be hard to to discern where this kind of thing is present in our own lives. But perhaps, perhaps there are ways that we could recognize it in ourselves when we might find ourselves continually drawn to beliefs, practices, causes in Christianity that we find beneficial or convenient while we also regularly bow out with beliefs, practices, and causes that are unpopular or hard. You ever find yourself drawn to to what you find beneficial or convenient in Christianity while also regularly bowing out when things are unpopular or hard? Do you find yourself drawn to to comfortable beliefs, like the good news of forgiveness, but without any real doctrine of repentance? Do your beliefs permit a a comfortable view of God wherein he's, He's sovereign enough to to care for you and to be mindful of you and to provide for you, but he's not quite sovereign enough to determine who does or doesn't go to hell or, or sovereign enough to tell us what to do with our, our sexuality. Are, are you drawn to practices in Christianity like that of experiencing Christian community and friendship and, and Christian community, but you tend to bow out when there's conflict or when that community actually costs you something? Do you find yourself drawn to aspects of Christian mission and mercy that advocate for the poor or minorities and and, and oppressed peoples, causes that are are commonly acceptable among your peers, but you also find that when it comes with other issues of justice, like the, the subject of abortion, that that's just too complicated to actually address? 
Or, or, or evangelizing your neighbor when it comes to Christian mission is, is evangelizing your neighbor, your coworker, when it could cause you relational strife and division. Is that just too costly for you? This is, this is, this is, uh, these are ways in which we can find ourselves distancing ourselves from, from aspects of Christianity that are unpopular and inconvenient, while also trying to hold on to, to things that are popular and convenient. And, and if that's the case, then friends, this shows a willingness to, to crush the real true Jesus for the sake of getting what we want out of him. If you find yourself bowing out when things are difficult and only cherry picking the things in Christianity that you find beneficial or convenient, then perhaps it's not Christianity that you believe in. Perhaps it's some form of consumeristic Christianity, a religion that consumes Jesus as a commodity and as a means to other ends. But then the call of Christianity, friends, is is much more than a call to consume Jesus' ministry. It's a call to be a people who seek to be with Jesus and who seek to join Jesus in his ministry, which is what we find as we look at verses 13 to 19 here, where we find a called community. Mark writes, starting in verse 13, that Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, obviously, Jesus has, has escaped the madness of the crowd here, and he's, he's gone up on this, this mountain, and he's called his followers to himself, and out of his followers, he appoints 12. And notice that, that Mark seems to emphasize the point. He says it twice here, that there are 12, that Jesus appointed 12, 12 of them. Of course, you know, I'm convinced that most, a lot, not, maybe not most, but there's a lot of good things in life that come in 12s. Um, like if you think about donuts, they often come in 12s, right? And uh, donuts may be the best pastry in existence, particularly Bill's donuts. Um, and in particular, Bill's cream-filled donuts. If you can get 12 of those, you're in, in good shape. Eggs come in 12s. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of eggs. The days of Christmas, we all like Christmas. Um, not only that, ribs, I think, generally come in 12. I could be wrong about that. I don't know. But lots of good things in life come in 12s. But it's interesting to look throughout the scriptures and see how much God seems to like the number 12. He uses it quite a bit. And because of that, it ought to catch our attention when we see Jesus appoint 12 here, especially as he does so from atop a mountain. Okay, Because this isn't the first time in the scriptures that we see God appoint 12 of something from atop a mountain. Uh, a first century Jewish reader would have easily and undoubtedly made the connection here between what takes place with Jesus here and what took place in the Old Testament with Yahweh appointing the 12 tribes of Israel from atop Mount Sinai. Through Moses in the Pentateuch at Mount Sinai, Jesus or Yahweh appointed the 12 tribes of Israel based on the descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. And for what? Why did he appoint them? He appointed them so that, Exodus 19, so that they might be a kingdom of priests to God 
and to all the nations of the earth. So what does that mean? It means that they were to have a special relationship with Yahweh and to represent him as his very own ambassadors so that all of the nations of the earth would be drawn into relationship with him through his representatives, Israel. And as we know, Israel failed in this mission, and they forfeited their calling to represent Yahweh to the nations. They repeatedly broke the covenant and failed to bring the nations into the covenant community. And so with all of that in mind, you can see how Jesus here is reinstating this divine purpose in this new covenant community, how he's forming a people here for himself to have a special relationship with him and to represent him to the nations. Now, of course, we'd be remiss to say, if we didn't say, that the 12 apostles did this in a particularly unique way. They were ambassadors for Jesus in a unique way that no one else can claim or replicate in this life. They carried a unique and peculiar authority that no one today possesses, and yet, on the other hand, suffice, just maybe we could just simply say that the mission and ministry that they received from Jesus here is analogous to the mission and ministry that we're called to as Christians today. True, they had a uniquely delegated authority to preach and to cast out demons, and they got to be with Jesus in a unique way during his earthly ministry. And yet, as Christians, we're all summoned into life with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, and we're all called to herald the gospel and to push back darkness in this world as God's new covenant people. In other words, we're all called not to the consumeristic Christianity of the crowds, but into a life with Jesus and into a participation in his ministry. The call of the Christian faith is a call to be a people who enter into covenant relationship with Jesus and live as his representatives. This is confirmed from, from Peter, as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.9, that you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have been called out of darkness into light so that you might be a people who have a special relationship with Christ and who represent him in the world. And again, the apostles did this in a unique way as apostles. And yet by extension, Christian, we are all a part of this new community of people who have special relationship with Jesus and who represent him to the world. By faith in Jesus, you belong to this new covenant people whom we see Jesus forming in this passage. Veritas, you are a kingdom of priests for your God who has chosen you and called you. And now there are three characteristics we see of this new covenant community in our passage this morning that I want to exhort you to live into before we close. First, we need to be a community who is with Jesus. Be a community who is with Jesus. Notice how Jesus appoints his disciples here in verse 14 that they might be with him. That they might be with him. Commentator James Edwards says that this phrase has atomic significance. Notice here that that being a part of this new covenant people, the vocation of being disciples of Jesus is first about a relationship before it's about a task or benefits or, and, 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 and this is in direct contrast to the crowd who sought Jesus for just what he could give them. A community who 
is with Jesus, seeks to be with Jesus simply because of who he is, not because of what, simply because of what he can give them. A community who is with Jesus genuinely listens to him. They want to understand him. They want to know him. They want fellowship with him. They want to be near him. They want to hear and listen to his word. They, they want to commune with him and be with him. They want to be with Jesus. They want to be more like Mary than Martha. When Mary and Martha had Jesus over for dinner... Martha's up with all sorts of of busyness, doing things for Jesus, while while Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to him. And what does Jesus say to Martha? He says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. What's the good portion? What's the one necessary thing? Being with Jesus, listening to Jesus, being near Jesus. That's what he wants, truly. Truly. It says here that he called those whom he desired, whom he desired, he desired these particular disciples, these particular people to be his and to be with him. Oh, Christian, the same is true of you. I wonder if you realize that, that Jesus wanted you. He he wants you, present tense, still, he wants you. That's, That's why he called you. That's why he came. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he suffered there and bled and died so that you would be with him so that he could have ongoing forever communion with you as his own beloved disciple. Jesus wanted you. If you're not a Christian here today, you should know that this is why Jesus has come. He's come because he loved us and he desired us, and he wants us to be with him forever. This is what Christianity is primarily about. It's not primarily about doing stuff for Jesus or getting stuff from Jesus. It's primarily about Jesus, not as a means to another end, but having him, being with him, and him having us, and our being his forever. That's what Christianity is all about. But then notice that Jesus doesn't just call this new covenant community of his disciples to be with him, he also calls us to be a community who lives sent by him. He appoints the 12, not just to be with him, but also so that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons, to have relationship with him, but also to represent him. He calls his people to himself that he might send us into the world to declare his gospel and to push back darkness. Of course, this, this too is in direct contrast with the consumeristic crowds. The, consum- the consumer crowds seek Jesus for what he can give, and then they move along. And this new covenant community of disciples is with Jesus and lives sent by Jesus for his sake and glory. And again, that might look different for God's people today than it did for the apostles, and yet the mission, by extension, is still the same. You may not preach a sermon to crowds of thousands like the apostles But we're all called to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ and our own spheres of influence. Daily, you encounter people who have yet to hear or believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. You daily encounter them in your ordinary rhythms of life. And part of your call as a representative of Jesus Christ is to communicate his message to this world. And the elders here, we've asked you, and we'll continually do so, to identify your one. Who's your one? Who's your one? Identify one person 
that you are intentionally going to pray for, pursue relationship with, seek to share the gospel with, and seek to bring into Christian community with you so that, they, so that you might be a means of their hearing the gospel and being saved. Some of you, some of you guys are involved in, in evangelistic ministry. Some of you will be in the future. That's wonderful. But we're not calling everyone to, to devote themselves to uh, you know, an evangelistic ministry as uh, you know, this, this vocational thing. Uh, all of us are sent, rather, to, to represent Jesus in this world and to declare his message. This is, this is part of all of our callings as followers of Jesus. Our friend Charles Spurgeon once said that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. And yet some of you, at the same time, will indeed be set aside for particular callings in line with this vocation. You know, I'm, I'm still praying as I've told you before, that three to five individuals or households in this church would, would begin to sense a call to cross-cultural missions and seek to be sent out from our church to the nations. There are 3,150 unengaged, unreached people groups wherein there's no substantial belief in the gospel. No church is planted. Some of them, no one's even trying to bring the gospel to them. This is, this is part of our call as God's people, as God-sent people. We're part of this call to, to do something about that reality. We're called to be a community who lives sent by Jesus. And then lastly, we're called to be a community who is with Jesus, sent by Jesus, and united by Jesus. And this is one very clear way that we can represent Jesus faithfully in this world. He said that, that the way the world will know that we're his disciples is by our love for one another, by the, the unity that we share in Christ, the unity we possess in the gospel. And we find that, that, that call here as we look at this, this very peculiar community that Jesus has put together. I mean, this is a ragtag group of disciples. You have Peter, who's abrasive and loudmouthed and rather foolish, and he's the leader of the group. And then you have uh, John and James, the sons of thunder, which we don't know exactly why they're called that. Uh, no explanation is given, but people tend to think that it had something to do with them having kind of volatile or hot-tempered personalities. We don't know exactly, though. And more shockingly, it's of interest to see that we have both Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot in this same group. And tax collectors, of course, were those who colluded with Rome in an effort to collect taxes from their Jewish brothers, while zealots were those who were vehemently and even violently opposed to, to Roman occupation and, and to the tax collectors who worked with them. Zealots were committed to waging holy war on Rome and all who cooperated with Rome. And yet what brings this, this ragtag group together, some of whom would have been otherwise mortal enemies, it had to be something that transcended their less significant distinctions, namely their master and their Lord, Jesus Christ. Undoubtedly, you know, we live in, in highly divisive and fractured times, but so did they. They lived in very fractured times, and yet because of Jesus... They laid down their identities based on a particular political group or ideology or job or whatever, and they were chiefly finding their identity in Christ and thereby able to belong to the same community, the same family, the same group of disciples. And likewise, for us today, what we have in common in Jesus, 
far outweighs the differences we have in, in whatever political groups we belong to or, or where we get our news from or even in more significant distinctions, our differences in race or income bracket or, or sex, our, our, our differences in what we think about this, this pandemic, our differences in age or, or generation, our differences in, in marital status or how many dependents we have on our W-2 forms. But our being identified with Jesus transcends all of that, and thus he's the one who's able to bring us together. And thus we ought to pursue church unity rather than being a church of consumers and users who, who, who separate along those usual lines of consumeristic Christianity. We ought to be those who are united because Jesus transcends all of those other identities and ideologies. Jesus is the one who has called us not to be a crowd of consumers who seek Jesus and who, who come to church merely for the sake of convenience and the benefits we find therein, but to be a community of disciples, disciples of Jesus who, who live life with Jesus, who live sent on the mission of Jesus, and in a community united by Jesus, the Jesus who transcends all of our other ideologies or all of our other distinctions and identities. We find our identity in him first and foremost and are in him a kingdom of priests to our God and to all the nations of the world. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that these high callings to be a people who live life with Jesus and who live sent by Jesus and who are united in Jesus would be wrought in us by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would help us to continually repent of any forms of consumeristic Christianity which so easily colonize our minds and our hearts and help us to, to sacrificially be a community who lives into the calling that we find here. Jesus give his apostles and disciples. Help us to be that new community, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.